Baptist Church, Charlotte. Verse number one, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I'm going faster than the projection people are. Romans 12, verse number one, just trust me, I'll read it right, okay? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living, somebody say living, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Anything you do uh, unto the Lord is a form of worship. It's not a qualification. It's not uh, being good enough for God. There is no good enough for God. It's not accomplishing personal salvation. It is worship. We succeed or fail at worship. Yes. That's why our motivation is uh, love. It is an offering unto the Lord. Uh, If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. Uh, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Notice that there is a transformation, and where is it going to happen? In your mind. There's going to be a renewal in your mind that by testing you may desire, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and that most terrifying of words, perfect. Good, acceptable, perfect. Uh, for a title, I'm going to call this a heel worth dying on. Uh, pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, speak to our hearts. I'm, I'm past, I'm, I'm beyond rhetorical effort, Lord. I'm not, not trying to be a celebrity preacher. I just want to help somebody. I want to convey some truth of the, of the word of the Lord that would bring hope and joy yes. into the lives of people who carry far too much darkness in their day to day. In Jesus' name we pray. Help me to do a good job. Help the people to like me. In Jesus' name. Yes. Amen. One more time, give the Lord a praise. Would you do that all across the house? We bless you, O oh God. Mm, that new song you are singing, Storms came when blew my house his beer. Isn't that good? That's one of those songs I'm going to wake up at three in the morning and I'll be going, hmm. Anyway, moving along. Thank you, my brother. I think the most interesting word in Romans chapter number 12, and this really is a difficult choice because there is so much uh, here in this transition that happens in the book of Romans, the epistle of Romans. There's a transition that happens right here, and we go from uh, understanding of biblical truths to application of biblical truths, and it happens right here, uh, the first verse of chapter number 12. If you read the book of Romans, which is the closest thing to a systematic theology that's given to us in any of the epistles, uh, the closest thing to a summation of a new covenant that's given to us in any of the epistles um, here in the book of Romans, you will have followed through 11 chapters of understanding the problem of the human heart, the curse of sin, um, how faith enabled the patriarchs to have a relationship with God, and how through the redemptive sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, we are able to stand in a new covenant, a new hope, and it is all summed up in the one word that I think is uh, the most interesting word in this chapter, and it is this, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore. The writer, Paul, is making a type of confession. I have given you your why. This is why we have such a thing called church. This is why we do such a thing called worship. 
This is why, are y'all going to preach with me a little bit here today? It's funner. I don't preach as long if you preach with me a little bit. So uh, this is why uh, you have the opportunity to go to an altar, bow your knee, and repent of your sins. The why is here. Um, You who were dead in trespasses and sins are now, you have a chance to become alive in Christ Jesus. And sin, which was the separator, the the divisor, the divider. (laughs) What am I trying to say? Numerator and the divider. Uh, That is what is keeping you from the presence of God. But God has made a way whereby the curse of sin has been removed and you, if you choose, can enter into the presence of God because of what God has done for you. There is a response that only makes sense on your part. There is a way of living that only makes good sense on your part. You have to change the way you think. You have to change your motivation. No longer are you a slave, a servant. Now you are a beloved son or daughter. Change the why. And this is how you live in response. I appeal to you, uh, somebody say it with me, therefore. I appeal to you, uh, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's a way to live in response to what God has done, uh, done for you. Um, this is a response we make when we perceive grace and mercy and we uh, are moved by Calvary and we are made aware of new hope through Jesus Christ. We make a decision to live a certain way. Uh, we make a decision to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I have a big amen? We make a decision to serve. We make a decision to pray. We make a decision to change the way we think. We choose faith over judgment. We, we, we stop the business of walking through life as judges and deciding who's worthy and who's good. And we instead turn into worshipers and we worship God as the only one who is good. We live a certain way. Elbow your neighbor, say, I'm trying to live a certain way. Say, I'm not perfect. But I'm trying. And so this is the response, uh, the response of the heart that is moved by the love of God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that moves us. Scarcely for a good man uh, will one die. Uh, perhaps, perhaps, you know, or a man or a good man. But uh, while we were yet sinners, uh, let me say it this way. Um, you know how the enemy comes along and tells you you dropped the ball again, you just should give up? Yeah. Condemnation is a real spiritual battle in, in many of our lives. And uh, you think it's about something embarrassing and you think I ought to just give up. Let's say you had a bad week. Now, if you're churchified enough, you won't be honest that you had a bad week. You'll act like you didn't have a bad week. You will act like you were so righteous this week when you walked, your feet didn't touch the ground, your guardian angel asked you for coaching advice. Um, you, you will act, you're churchified. You will fake it. Some of you cried in the middle of the night this week, but you haven't let anybody know that today because you are in your church attire. You're religified and all that's fine and good and human and we don't need to uh, pretend like that it's some 
special condition of the broken heart. No, it's humanity for us to have layers to our personality. The people we let in, the people we don't let in, and some of us don't let anybody in. But the problem with all those layers is we think they work with God, and they don't. They don't work with God. And so we kind of, we, we have this difficulty, uh, but we, we don't confess it. We have setback, but we don't admit it. We hide it because um, we don't want anyone to know that we're not doing as good as we act like we're doing. Um, we have secret sins, hidden sins, and uh, hell comes along and says, what about that? And you think, man, I should give up. I should quit trying, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but grace says, don't give up. <laughs> God knew every sin you were going to commit before you committed it, and he chose to love you anyway. We know God in time. God doesn't know us in time. He knows the end from the beginning. We are creatures of time. God is not a creature of time. God does not exist in time. Time exists in God. That means God knows you, the whole you, all the dumb stuff you're going to do next year. He knows right now. You don't know. But he knows. And he saw at Calvary everything you were going to do, and he decided you were worth it, and he died for you. So you need to get back up, dust yourself off, and try, try, try again. Repent of your sins. Turn away from your wickedness. Even the sin that is so successful with your personality, even the lust that is so successful with your habits and your hidden mind, life of the mind, even that sin. Repent of it today. We repent, Lord Jesus. We celebrate your goodness, not our goodness. We rejoice in your righteousness, not our righteousness. Today we make a new start in you. Today we turn away from sin. Today we call upon the name of the Lord. And can some church folks cry out in praise to God right now? We bless you, O oh God. Uh, see, see uh, what you're going to believe and how you're going to live, is, it, it deeply, deeply matters. Um, uh, uh, so the gospel is not religion. Real quick, I should just explain this. And the gospel is not religion in the manner of the many human religions. Uh, if I give you an overview of human religion, it'd go like this. Uh, you believe in some deity, and you begin to try to worship uh, or make offerings to that deity, and uh, you try to please this deity, and as you are more successful in pleasing this deity, this deity uh, begins to give you more of what you want. So you make the deity happy, the, happy make, the deity makes you happy, and maybe if you get good enough at pleasing the deity, whatever the human religion is, as you get better at pleasing the human deity, you become more like that deity. You kind of raise your um, uh, godliness score, and then you're saved if you can get your godliness score high enough. Come on now, lay it down, Rev. This is not the gospel. The gospel says your righteousness is as filthy rags. You can't get good enough to win this game. Instead, since you don't have an opportunity to compete on being better than people, what you are offered instead is to be a worshiper of the one who is complete and perfect in all manner and in all ways. That's the gospel. 
we who were dead, somebody say dead, in trespasses and sins are now made alive. How? That's the gospel through Jesus Christ. All right, let me move along. Um, You see, hell has certain things it believes about you. Now, let me pause right here and say um, something that I was going to say at the beginning, but I forgot, and so now I'm going to say it now. And you can just write down a negative comment about how I did not follow perfect homiletical um, flow, okay? Um, One of the things that has uh, been heavy in my thoughts recently is if you go by church attendance, the church has young people, your children, your students, we have them uh, in some form of a service, uh, first kids, uh, bold. We, we have them between 30 and 50 hours a year, 30 and 50 hours a year. So in that 30 to 50 hours, a lot of things has to happen. We have to have some fun. Um, we have to, uh, you, can't, you can't just make them memorize the whole time. Uh, you get together, you talk. Some of that is getting to know each other. So uh, maybe half of that we're able to teach your young people, your kids, uh, something about the, about the Bible. Well, uh, the problem with that is 30 hours, 15 to 30 hours a year is not enough. Now, if you look at the same data, you will have, as a parent, you will have between three and 4,000 or even three and 5,000 hours of unstructured time. You could do whatever you wanted to do with your kids. So the church has your kids, your young people, your student age kids, um, 15, up to 15, 20 hours, depending on your church attendance a year. Um, you have them between three and 5,000 hours a week. There is no way the church can put in your kids what they need to get in 15 to 30 hours a year when you at home have three to 5,000 hours a year to have spiritual conversations with your children. And so one of the things we as a team have been talking about for a while is how do we empower you to have those spiritual conversations? You need to set a goal. Just, just hear me for a moment. I know this is kind of in, inside the house here, but just, 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 just a moment here. Uh, you need to have at least one spiritual conversation with your children every week. At least one spiritual conversation with your children every week. So one of the things we're doing as a team is we're starting a discussion guide that's based off the 11 o'clock service every week that is available to you. You'll see, you can put the, the link up on the screen if you have that. Uh, this is a guided conversation that you can have with your children based on whatever was preached in the 11 o'clock service. If you don't want to use our material, it's okay. Use your own, but please have at least one spiritual conversation with your kids every week. 15 hours a year is not enough for the church to put what your young people need to have placed in them. All right, moving along. Here is what the enemy thinks he knows about you. The devil believes things about you. And the first thing he believes is you really aren't interested in knowing the heart of God and loving that heart of God, being moved by the beauty of the Lord. What you want is a quid pro quo relationship with God. If God's good to you, you're good to him. That's what Satan believes about you. And this gives us the context of the oldest written book of the Bible as far as the date where we have textual proof. The oldest one is the book of Job. 
And it is the story of Job who was prosperous, owned lots of livestock, had seven sons and three daughters. And the devil makes this appeal. Of course, Job loves you. You're so good to him. Job doesn't know you. He is bribed. You see, hell understands the theology of the bribe. And this is what hell thinks it knows about you. You see, hell has seen the heart of humanity from the beginning and uh, various uh, demonic forces and whatnot that are referenced in the scripture. They have seen the heart of human idolatry from the beginning. How does idolatry work? If you need something, you find the deity that has it and you go take offerings and obeisance to that deity. And if you make that deity happy, whatever it is you want is given to you by that deity. It is, watch, the theology of the bribe. And this is what the devil believes about us, that of course, as long as God is good to us, then, then we will love him. As long as we get what we want, as long as we have a successful prosperity doctrine, as long as we are blessed according to what we think we deserve. Uh, but Lucifer makes this proposition. Let me take away the stuff and let's see where his heart is. We know where his wallet is. Let's see where his heart is. And so, uh, very short order, what happens to Job? You guys know the story. He loses all of his wealth, great wealth. It comes upon him like a tsunami of terrible uh, reports and uh, news. And he loses all of his wealth. And then uh, the house where his children are uh, eating, the roof falls in and they all die. He loses his wealth. He loses his children. The only thing he has left is his wife because the devil figured out that his life would be harder if he left her alive. That's funny. I don't care what y'all say right there. That's the wrong kind of spousal support. We don't want to be that kind of support to our, 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 our spouses, do we? We want to speak life with one to another. Can I have a big amen? We want to speak faith one to another. We want to speak grace. Oh, I want to be a blessed. Okay, moving along. All right. So that's half-hearted response there. Um, the devil knew that Job's life would be harder if he just left that woman alive because she, she uh, uh, whatever the case, she gives this advice. Whether it came from a place of love or a place of bitterness, she gives this advice. Job, why don't you curse your God and die? The bribe is not working. Do you see? This is the human mind. The bribe is not working. With a deity like that, who needs a devil? Amen. That's the argument. This is what Lucifer believes about us. We're not really interested in closeness with God. We don't really want to walk with him in the cool of the evening. What we really want is a God who will serve us, not a God whom we will serve. Because that's a God even Lucifer can worship. And Job makes a statement that to me is a perfect picture of defiant faith. Now, 
Uh, most of the time when you hear people talk about defiant faith, what they are meaning is how to be rude to other Christians who don't have the same doctrine as you. That's what they mean by defiant faith. That's not what I mean. No one was ever influenced toward truth by ugliness and rudeness. Nobody anywhere. Um, it's just not, that's not what works. It's charity that never fails. Can I have a big amen? And so uh, here, when I say defiant faith, I don't mean my ability to be rude to my neighbors because they're not of the same theological inheritance as me. I'm talking about a faith that looks circumstances in the eye and says, I made up my mind to live this way and nothing is going to dissuade me from it. I'm not here because I negotiated my way into serving God. I did not sign a contract of contractual obligation with God. I chose to love him because he first loved me. And it doesn't seem like it's working out for me. But watch. Though he slay me, yet I will serve him. That's defiant faith. This is defiant faith. I have come to a decision in my life. I have felt the presence of God. I have perceived his love and grace. I don't know what will fix this world, but I'll tell you this. If it's found, it's going to look like the heart of God and not the heart of hatred that fills our politics, that fills our sociocultural moments. It's not going to be found in the competition of who's seeking fame and which sport team win. That's not what's going to make this world whole. It's going to look like Jesus between heaven and earth saying, my life for yours. Job, he acknowledges that it doesn't look like his religion is working out very well. He acknowledges that for whatever reason, it seems as though he has lost, watch, the favor and protection of God. And some people can only worship if they can perceive and self-define favor. And if they cannot receive favor, they can only mourn. They cannot worship. Job has this defiant faith. Do I understand? No. Does it seem to be working out the way I thought it should? No. Does it make sense? No. But here is my defiant faith. Here is my statement of commitment beyond anything else. Though he slay me, yet I will serve him. God, give us that kind of a heart for your presence. Give us that kind of a heart for your promise. Help us to be moved by the beauty of the Lord. Help us to seek to know you, not just in goodness, but even in suffering. We seek to know you. There's a place in all of our life for defiant faith where we made up our mind and we the calculus stops. The figuring stops. The manipulation, the justification, that all stops. We made up our mind. Many, of you, Most of you did not have the opportunity to know my grandfather. He, he wasn't my grandfather by blood. He was a replacement grandfather. My actual grandfather um, had nothing to do with us kids. Um, he, I, I, I never once uh, got a phone call from him, got a 
birthday card from him, got a Christmas card from him. He had nothing to do with us, but it worked out really, really well because um, the Lord placed in my life a replacement uh, grandfather. And I just want to say to any of you who feel the lack of something, I would like you to believe that God will make up and make you whole. He will replace all that you have lost and he will make you whole. Don't let pain and suffering fill your heart with anger and rage toward people. Throw your heart at the church and see if the church does not wrap its arms around you and give you everything you need in God. Can I have a big amen? My grandfather loved, loved us kids uh, better than, uh, <laughs> better than uh, it, it just was amazing. He, he is a big part of who I am today. Um, he was a profound influence on me. And uh, he, uh, he just, his name was Gene Honeycutt, and um, he, had, he had served in World War II. He had spent uh, years um, as a marksman instructor down in Georgia, and then he was deployed when Europe was invaded, and he worked as an art, forward artillery absorber, uh, absorber, observer, and um, he uh, spent his time trying to coordinate artillery and whatnot. He was there at the crossing of the Rhine, the Rhine, the River Rhine, and um, he he has a, just a profound story. His brother, his, he had one brother killed. He had another brother who was um, wounded, uh, shot three times in North Africa, and um, he he had a when he was in his last years of life um he uh, he was dying really but he would not stop walking he decided he was going to do what he could could to be healthy as long as he could and he would walk now he lived not far over here i still own the house where he lived with my grandmother and he would walk all the way down come down this road go down to east lamal come all the way back down to um kilworth come back down go all the way down through Shamrock, back to where he lived. It was a six-mile walk, and he would walk it every day. And uh, one day, oh, one other thing you should know is he, he was old school. Um, he had really raised himself. His, his parents died when he was 13, and he had no family to take him in. He, he lived by going to the, the neighbors and asking if he could live in their barn, and he would help them around. Um, and that's how he, he grew up until he got old enough to join the army. He had this little knife. I don't know if you had a grand, grandpa like this, but little tiny knife, blade about an inch long that he would clean his fingernails with. Have you ever seen old people do that? They, they had the cleanest, it's like Dracula. His fingernails were so clean, holy cow. I mean, he would just sit there and talk like that little, little just clean them fingernails. And I tried it once. My mom slapped me so hard, I still sting when I think about it. And no fingernail cleaning knife for me. But he was walking down here, and he was up. There used to be Harris Teeter up here on the corner. Um, and he was cutting. He was going to go over to East Lamal to get something. And he was cutting behind that, that, that Harris Teeter, and there was a, a, a young guy there who was... Um, lived on the street and he was probably had mental health problems himself and um, probably an, another tragic story and and he came up to my grandfather and he, he came up and my grandfather's walking by and I remember my grandfather's in his last years of life he's not very strong at all and this guy just shoved him really hard and he said old man give me your wallet give me all your money or I'm gonna I'm gonna you know insert various threats and whatnot right here and my grandfather he, he's just a just a slight old guy walked with a stoop maybe 100 40 pounds. He looked at that guy who was much bigger than him who was robbing him in the process of robbing him and he reached in his pocket and he pulled out he pulled out that little knife and he took that blade out and he took a step toward this guy and he said listen buddy 
I did not march across France and Germany for two years to be robbed by the like of you behind the grocery store of my town. And he, he, he said, <laughs> he told me this later, he said, I've lived a good life. If today's my day, it's a good day. Um, I will never be that cool. <laughs> never be that cool. So I, I, I wanted to, though, one time. And so I told my wife, if you're mean to me one more time, <laughs> I, 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 if today's my day to die, then so be it. And I held that little spoon that she'd let me have up. And she said, honey, if you don't come out from under that bed, I don't know what. <laughs> There's a moment where, okay, so if, if, if we have clear lines of demarcation and all the bad people with the bad beliefs and the work of the devils over here and all the good people and all that over here, it's really easy to have defiant faith when you understand it's not so easy to have defiant faith when you don't understand. I've served you my whole life, Lord, and I've lost everything. You gave me these children. They weren't an accident. They're the gift of God, and I've lost them all. I, I've done, done good in business, not because I'm a crook, but because I'm, I'm, I'm good at it. I, I do what I say I do. You can only rob from people once. It's better to be a good business person than a crook. In fact, the mark of a crook is a mark of a sociopath is they always are moving. They can never be still because people figure them out really fast. In fact, true story, one of the best signs of a sociopath in your life is their need to keep moving. They can never stay with people because people are pretty good at see-through the lies. You get them once. I was successful because of your goodness in my life. I was successful because of your blessing in my life. I've lost everything. How can this be just? I serve you and you let hell get its hands on me. I loved you and you let the enemy put his hands on me. And here I am. Even my friends show up and point out that there's no way I cannot be anything but a terrible sinner because you are offended. And Job makes the decision. I, I, I don't understand, but here is where I am. This is a hill worth dying on right here. Though he slay me, I will serve him. What is the faith in our hearts that allows us to look circumstances in the face and say, I made up my mind to serve God. I thought it might be different. I thought it might look different, but I made up my mind and I choose today to accept the consequences of my decision, whatever those consequences are. You'll see images like this in the, in the scripture repeatedly. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter number three. Uh, they are trapped in this, this moment where uh, the enemies have 
have, their enemies has set them up to be killed by their own faith. It's not that they're against the empire, they're faithful servants, but there's something worth dying for in their uh, perspective, and that is we're not going to worship anyone uh, but Yahweh. There is no one else who is going to receive our worship. And so they say to Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Here is my heel worth dying on. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand. Heels a, here is a heel worth dying on. But if not, my God. Let it be known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image that thou hast set up. This is my heel worth dying on. I want to be honest with you. If, if, if you're willing to die on every heel in your life, you're not very wise. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff that it's not necessary for a Christian to have an opinion on. There's a lot of stuff that's just distraction. There's a lot of stuff people call God, and it's just politics. It's not God. They've, did, they've done a number on you. I know they got one or two verses here and strung them together, and if that's all your, if that's enough systematic theology than you, then Lord, I hope you don't go on the internet. Um, I, I know there's all kind of things people tell you you should care about. You should give to this. You should support this. You do you, okay? But let me tell you, for the believer, I stand with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm not being contentious just to be contentious here. I, I'm not trying to harm you. I'm, I'm not against whatever it is you're trying to do. But let me say this. I am not going to serve any other God. I'm not going to bow down to your idol. This is a hill to die on. Musicians, you can come. Daniel, three chapters later, are in many ways snared by the same enemies. And now it's King Darius because there's a lot of turnover of empire in the book of Daniel. And um, uh, there's multiple, uh, multiple kingdoms and leaders, kings, whatnot in the book of Daniel. Now it's King Darius. No one can pray to any other god except him for 30 days. And Daniel said, nope, uh, I've done my best. I have worked with everything I can work with. I've been so sweet. They try to get my sweat and sell it as sweet and low. I have been so good. I have been so kind. I have, I have interpreted dreams. I have been sweet to people that deserve to be slapped on both cheeks in Jesus' name. I have done everything I can do. Uh, but look, look, uh, here's the deal. I'm not going to pray to you. King Darius, I've, I've, I've done my best. And now when it's not working out for me, who am I if I simply change my worship because it's not working out for me? It's not serving my interests. It means nothing. Uh, Daniel takes the other approach. He's like, okay, you got me. But let me say, this is a hill worth dying on. And so they put him in the lion's den, and we all celebrate the story of the uh, feline lockjaw problem that broke out all across Babylon. And all they could do was whine and complain. Uh, you have these stories going on and on and on. Esther, you can't go in to the king. You can't go into the king. It is an insult 
enter in his presence without permission and request. You can't do it. Oh, it might be that this is why I was placed here. This is worth dying for. Peter, John, we're tired of you preaching about Jesus. If you keep it up, we're going to deal roughly with you. We're going to lock you up, and we might even kill you if you keep preaching about Jesus. But they're not going to stop just because it doesn't seem to be working out for them. What? This is what I want to challenge all of you to do. Back to my point. If we try to have this, this decision, this martial attitude and heart toward everything, that means that we have no foundations. If you take the tone and spirit of a warrior over everything, it's you don't know what's worth fighting over. And you're not long for anything because uh, you cannot have a thousand foundations in your life. Like the Apostle Paul said, yeah, there's a lot of boy teachers, but you haven't many fathers. Decide what the foundations are. We as believers cannot have this abrasive culture with everybody and everything over every issue. We have to let a thousand distractions fade while we hold the one profound, prophetic, promised truth. And that is something that we are so consumed with that though it cost us everything, we're not just in this because it's working out for us. I'm not just a Christian because it is serving my interests. I'm not, I made a, I want it to work. I chose this. Let me make this personal. Let me make this personal in my life. Say that the Lord had given me or any of our church leaders a vision for what the kingdom of the Lord should look like. That would be a vision that was embedded into what my gifts and talents were. It would be what I could see and I would aim for that and I would strive for that. And for a little while, here, 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 here's a personal example. Me or whatever leader was leading, for a little while, that vision prospered. It began to work. Work. It began to have success. And you thought, this is a sign that God is in it. But what if you were a Jeremiah and your whole generation was rejecting what it was you were offering? Was it still true? Yes. Come on. Was it still true? Yes. It's like one passage in the New Testament. Paul writes the church. He says, I tell you a truth. And does that make me your enemy? Are you an enemy because I told you the truth? So here you have this reality. For a while, it works out. Let's say you're going to serve the Lord. And for the first year, you prosper. Your business prospers. Your career prospers. You have blessing. But then the second year comes and the blessing is not there. Instead, you go into a trial. Maybe you have a sickness in your body. If all you had to hold to, oh, help me to preach, oh God. If all you had to hold to was the proof of God's favor that when the wind blows and when the storm comes, you're going to fall to pieces because you have no foundations. Oh, my brother and sister. But if you have found something in your spirit, your mind, and in the word of God, you're able to stand with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're able to stand with Daniel. You're able to stand with Peter and John. You're able to stand with Esther. You're able to stand with Stephen. I did not 
not make this commitment because it looked good for me. I wasn't doing life advice when I made up my mind. I decided to serve the Lord. Oh, I wish I could preach here. I decided to serve the Lord. Has anyone made that decision in your heart? I decide to serve the Lord. There's going to be good years and there's going to be lean years, but I made up my mind to serve the Lord. If you feel that way, stand all over the house and lift your hands and say, I made up my mind. I made up my mind. I made my decision. I'm going to die on this hill. I choose you. (laughs) The last thing I want to say to you is in doing that, you're not doing something new. You're reflecting the heart of God. Watch, watch, watch. In doing that, you're not doing something new. You're reflecting the heart of God. You're reflecting the heart of God. Adam was not deceived by the serpent. He chose to eat. He was not deceived. Why would he choose to eat? It's a practical statement of this truth. I would rather die than not have her. God, born in the flesh, walks the dusty lanes of Palestine, carries a cross to the top of Golgotha, where they've mocked him and beat him and lied and lied about him, accused him of all manners of things that are an offense to his character and nature. He's withheld the heavenly host. The angels of judgment tremble to be unleashed. And he raises not his hand, he raises not his voice. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opens not his mouth. And he dies, the just for the unjust, that he might what? Bring you to God. Jesus resisted all temptations of sin. He wasn't deceived. He chose to die. Like Adam, he says to deceived Eve, I would rather die than live without you. And so six hours between heaven and earth until finally, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou for, I would rather die than live without you. He loved you that much. Is there any other way? No, there's no other way. Okay. If there's no other way, that's a hill worth dying on. If there's no other way, that's a hill worth dying on. But Jesus, you're not living your best life. It's not really working out for you, you know. What you should do is this, this, that, or the other. This is not your best life. Is there any other way? No, there's no other way. Okay? (laughs) Judas, that which you need to do, do it quickly. There's no other way. My life for theirs. 
God teaches us how to die on the right hill. Not all of them. The right one. I'm going to open this front up right now. I feel the moving of the spirit right now. If you're moved in your spirit and you want to respond to such a great love of God, I want to invite you to step out right now. I want you to come down and as you come, I want you to lift your hands and I want you to say, God, I choose you. When it works out good, I choose you. If it doesn't work out by my own estimation, I choose you. When I'm blessed, I choose you. When I'm struggling, I choose you. When I've got money, I choose you. When I don't have money, I choose you. I made up my mind and I'm standing beside that. I'm holding on to that. Nothing is going to take away way my decision i choose you today in jesus name thank you for listening to first church charlotte if this podcast has blessed you please rate it with four or five stars by doing so you will help others find our free podcast and bless them if you're in the charlotte north carolina area come worship with us at 4929 north sharon amity road for information about service times church ministries and so much more visit us online at first church clt.com if you would like to help support our efforts please text give to 704-445-5353 we pray god's richest blessings to you come Worship with us.